This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. On the day of the coup, we had soldiers coming to our offices with uh, M16 guns. The military is uh, capable of anything in future. But it was disguised as a civilian coup. I have been receiving messages of encouragement from chiefs and leaders representing all the people of Fiji. So um, we were taken hostage. Remove the military from Fiji, we wouldn't have a coup culture. Social inequality, police brutality, corruption and the use of military force. Fiji became a colony of Britain in 1874 until it gained independence as the Dominion of Fiji in 1970. But with this independence, came mounting pressure and tensions along racial and ethnic lines. This led to a series of coups where the Fijian military applied intimidation tactics and threats to overthrow the government and gain political power. And life in Fiji has never been the same since. Kia ora, Bulavanaka, I'm Korovaka Uta, and you're listening to Untold Pacific. In this final episode of our five-part trip around the Pacific Islands, we take a look at Fiji, a country one and a half thousand kilometres northeast of New Zealand, an archipelago made up of around 330 islands. Today, everybody is regarded as Fijians, with indigenous Fijians referred to as Itoke. But for the sake of this story, we're referring to Indian Fijians as Indo-Fijians and native Fijians as indigenous Fijians. Four coups rocked Fiji between 1987 and 2006, and at the heart of each were racial tensions, disputes between indigenous Fijians and Indian Fijians. Unpacking those disputes is like pulling apart a Russian doll. Inside the tensions is the growth of the Indian Fijian population since the late 1800s. Inside that, a demand for labour. And inside that, the success and power of the sugarcane industry. And to tell that story, we need to go right back to the arrival of Europeans in this part of the world. It's a story familiar to New Zealanders. First came Abel Tasman in 1643, then James Cook more than a century later. The infamous William Bly of the Bounty was the first to chart the islands around 1778. That literally put Fiji on the map, and from the 1800s, more Europeans came to Fiji to trade and do business. They wanted to hunt whales, 
harvest sea cucumber and cut down sandalwood trees. Some chose to stay and were allowed to become residents. Initially, Christian missionaries struggled to win converts when they arrived in the 1830s, but slowly the new faith forced out many traditional customs. Over the next generation, European influence grew, even as Fijians fought them and each other for control of the islands. In 1871, warlord Seru Ipinesa united the islands and became king of Fiji. But he was under the thumb of the foreign powers, Britain and the United States, and his reign didn't last long. Local chiefs still quarrelled, America and neighbouring Tonga still threatened, and European settlers refused to be subject to an indigenous government. So, just three years later, in 1874, Thakambao ceded the islands to Queen Victoria. Twelve years earlier, Britain had rejected Fiji's offer of colonisation, but this time it stepped in, and Fiji became a crown colony, another piece of the massive British Empire. The way we see colonialism is very different. Jope Terai is a tutor and scholar at the University of the South Pacific. A lot of what we think of our history is at times devoid of colonialism, at least in you know, a political landscape. Indigenous Fijians worship colonialism. There's a lot of sense of respect for colonialism and the fact that colonialism is all benevolent and all that. Indo-Fijians, on the other hand, see it differently. The biggest changes in Fiji all began with the four Cs, Christianity, cotton, copra and cane sugar. The Christian missionaries arrived in the 1830s, instilling the importance of education. Cotton came swiftly afterwards, around 1860, when the American Civil War disrupted the cotton industry in the States, and with it an influx of new migrants who came to work on Fiji's cotton fields. In the 1870s, copra plantations were introduced, and from the early 1880s, cane sugar followed, becoming Fiji's primary export under the Colonial Sugar Refining Company. As a colony, there was a need to produce uh, something for the British in terms of returns and so on. So largely sugar was sort of that main commodity because of the weather, the climate. For an empire that had outlawed slavery not that long ago, blackbirding looked uncomfortably familiar. Administrators began to crack down and look for larger scale, more dependable and more willing labour. The British didn't want to ruffle any feathers or harm the relationship they had established with the Fijians. And the governor of Fiji at the time was Sir Arthur Hamilton Gordon, who saw himself as a protector of the Fijian way of life. So the British themselves struggled in establishing the authority. So in order to maintain whatever that the, the British wanted to establish, it was important to maintain also that stability with the indigenous Fijians at the time. So it just made sense to do what Britain had already been doing, on and off, since the 1830s, acquiring cheap labour from other places. In this case, through the indentured labour scheme. The first port of call was an easy get. India had been under British rule for more than two centuries. That basically involved having to bring in um, people under the Gurmit um, scheme. The word Gurmit translated as agreement in English. 
After the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, these agreements were basically contracts that created an indentured labour scheme. That sent about a million Indians around the world to do the kind of work that slaves had done. And because they signed the agreements as indentured servants, they became willing workers. Those who ended up in Fiji were largely from northern India and poorer parts of the country. You could say they were easy targets. Like many migrants, they wanted a better life, and these agreements gave them a chance to come back to India after the contracts finished. Or so they were led to believe. You see, there were clauses in the Gurmit agreements that were sometimes abused by plantation owners and employers. Here's an example of the indenture agreement of 1912. 1. Period of service, five years from the date of arrival in the colony. Nature of labour work in connection with the cultivation of the Number of days in which the immigrants are required to labour in each week, every day except Sundays, every adult male immigrant above the age of 15 years will be paid not less than one shilling, which is at present equivalent to... The law is that a man's task shall be as much as ordinary able-bodied adult male and that a woman's task shall be three-fourths of a man's task. An employer is not bound to a lot more than the colony will be entitled to a free return passage until he reaches the age of 12. ...from the employers between the first six months after the arrival on the plantation, according to the scale... Yeah, it was more or less indigenous labourers and there were a variety of other specifications around those agreements. Uh, for some, uh, it was quite difficult, the way they were treated, the way they were worked, more or less like slave conditions. Depending on their employers, some workers began their day at 3am. It was gruelling. Sanitation was poor. Cultural practices were difficult to maintain, and being so far from home, depression was sinking in. Infanticides were common. Some women were even forced to work long days straight after childbirth. This new life was so tough that some workers started taking their own lives. Back to Jopi Terai. When you look into the writings, I mean, it's horrible. There are very strong accounts of the way people were worked in humane ways and, and treated in the inhumane ways as well. Regardless of ethnicity, you'd think about it as, man, this is hell. Sort of like slave conditions. And in our modern terms, if you, if you look at it, it just wouldn't wish it upon anyone, well, unless, of course, you, you know, are trying to hurt somebody. Indian immigration passes to Fiji were handed out between 1879 and 1916. But outrage in the United Kingdom put a stop to the Gurmit agreements. And four years later, Indo-Fijians were freed from their contracts. Tarai says one of the benefits that came out of the scheme was intermarriage across caste systems, which would never have been permitted back home. We now have descendants of Gurmitia as part of the agreement uh, with the British. Those descendants we now live with as Indo-Fijians and are part of our fabric of what we now see as modern Fiji. The, the communities are quite assimilated in having to speak each other's languages, people are intermarried, and especially in the urban areas it's a bit more apparent because you're looking at a whole big bureaucracy and, and there were a lot of things that were done I don't think in, in very transparent terms at times. But that basically meant that we had sort of a migrant population that established itself and um, that had to come and live in the country um, ever since then and, and until now. In just a few generations, the Indian Fijian population grew rapidly, bringing different cultures and priorities. 
Indo-Fijians, or at least majority, uh, were having to forge their lives, you know, as time went on, in closer to urban centers and with conditions where education was prioritized and is main, main, the main focus. From the start, attitudes between the cultures were different, especially when it came to education, and later this would create a social divide, which became more apparent as many Indians prospered as small business owners. The former indentured labourers saw the benefits of education and the opportunities it would give them. I asked Mr Langai, headmaster of the Fijian school, what proportion of village children attended his school. Three quarters. And the proportion of Indian children? All the school aged children come to school. So three quarters of Fijian children were attending school compared to compulsory attendance for Indian children. Here's more from the Indians in Fiji 1970, recorded by Alwyn Owen for the NZBC, marking Fiji's independence. What are the main educational needs? The Indian school? I should like to see that uh, the education in Fiji goes higher up and we get more specialist teachers from uh, the headquarters, that is, uh, where the teachers are trained, to come and help us. Fijian needs were more basic. I would like a uh, sort of body to cater for these unfortunate pupils who cannot go into secondary school, to have another sort of uh, adult educational centre or something. Indo-Fijians were becoming wealthier, triggering underlying tensions between the two ethnic communities. We are hard workers. We want to see our children well-educated and we work for this. If you walk down the street here at any time of the night, you will see Indians in the shops working at their sewing machines. In the cane fields too. For some local Fijians, making a living and sustaining themselves was difficult, with less formal education, less experience on the plantations and a tradition of planting smaller family crops, many indigenous Fijians struggled to get the capital they needed to start new businesses. Back to archival audio from the Indians in Fiji 1970 for the NZBC. Semisi Nandriumbalava started from scratch. When I came here empty-handed, I had no money, I have no farm implements. There are two kind of uh, loans in Fiji. And to the bank, to then ask for loan. They said, what you have? I have a land. What's in the land? There's nothing. So no, you have insufficient security. You must have some crop. And without bank loans to set themselves up, they looked to the more successful Indian farmers and business owners who granted them loans. But some took advantage, charging at least three times more interest than the banks. He will charge me a hell of a lot, you know. Not like the bank system. The bank only, say, give an interest of 7% per annum to 100 pounds. Some of these uh, money lenders, some of them charge 25%, some even 30%. The question is, how could Fiji reach a point of social and economic equilibrium? The people that were running Fiji, the white people, were keeping everybody separate. Michael Field is a veteran Kiwi journalist and author of Spate of Violence, which covers the 2000 and 2006 coups. The Fijians were being kept in their villages, the Indians on their lines, and the white folk were living in Lautoka 
in Suva, and we were pulling in the odd indigenous Fijian to be a policeman, an Indian to be a cobbler. It was a pure system of exploitation. The Indians, by the fact that they were in charge of the major cash crop, were assisting Fiji into what it has become. After World War II, things started to change. The old politics were overturned. First, Britain's days of empire were fading and its colonies were moving towards independence. In the 1950s, Indo-Fijians began outnumbering indigenous Fijians, who had previously been represented in government by their chiefs. Through to the 1960s, the British government and leaders from the Fijian and Indo-Fijian communities spent a lot of time negotiating over who should be in charge. A whole lot of decisions were made, but for the purposes of understanding the coups, all you basically need to know is that at the heart of Fijian politics is a divide along ethnic lines, not ideological ones. The Legislative Council grew in size. Indigenous Fijians got to vote directly rather than be represented by chiefs. A constitution was written, and ultimately in 1970, Britain withdrew. Fiji became an independent state. But through all the reforms, indigenous Fijians retained political control of the country and maintained ownership of the vast bulk of the land. Here's Ratu Kamasisimara's acceptance speech from the National Archives of Fiji. Nothing that is happening today can change the warm feelings of our people of Fiji for the Crown, the United Kingdom and its peoples. We have been too closely associated over the years, in good times... At first, the new independent Fiji was led by Ratu Sekama Sisimara and the Alliance Party. For more than a decade, it ruled with the National Federation Party, a mostly Indian Fijian party, in opposition. But by the mid-1980s, growing dissatisfaction with the two parties led to the creation of the Fiji Labour Party, and everything changed again. The Labour Party, led by Tomothi Bavandra, did something new. While mostly supported by Indo-Fijians, it drew support from across the board. It formed a coalition with the National Federation Party and won the 1987 elections, with 28 of the 52 seats in Parliament. Bavandra was ethnic Fijian, but his party was made up of mostly Indo-Fijian MPs. For many indigenous Fijians, this power shift was too much. His government lasted only a few weeks before Lieutenant General Setevini Rambuka led a military coup in May 1987, determined to protect indigenous Fijian dominance. Here's coverage from RNZ programme Insight. Democracy came to a sudden end in Fiji at 10 this morning when 10 armed soldiers led by Lieutenant Colonel Rambuka burst into the... It is appalling that it happens in a nation so close to New Zealand with whom we are so intimately connected. Colonel Rambuka later told a news conference that he'd neutralised Parliament, suspending the 17-year-old constitution, except for sections guaranteeing the safety of people and property. David Longy was New Zealand's Prime Minister at the time and pushed back hard. At the demands of Rambuka uh, to create a constitution in Fiji 
where the majority of the population would be second-class citizens. That is absolutely deplorable. I have been receiving messages of encouragement from chiefs and leaders representing all the people of Fiji supporting the declaration of the Republic of Fiji. The Republic of, the Republic of Fiji. Rambuka's voice rang loud and clear. He claimed that overthrowing the Labour Party was based on concerns around racial discrimination and that he was standing up for Indigenous Fijian rights. And from that point on, attacks against Indo-Fijians and whoever supported them erupted. Indian homes and businesses were looted. They said that Bavandra was, you know, a puppet of the Indians. This is Mahendra Chowdhury, whose roots in Fiji go back to 1902, when his great-grandfather arrived as an indentured labourer working on the sugar plantations. He would later be a prime minister who had to face a coup of his own. But when the first coup happened in May 1987, Chowdhury was an elected member of the Labour cabinet, led by Bavandra. And it had only been a month since the general election when Rambuka overthrew Parliament. Rambuka walks in when Parliament uh, was debating a motion on uh, the um, address of the uh, Governor-General on the opening of new Parliament. Then he stood up, pistol in his hand. He then asked all the government members to go into uh, the military trucks with armed soldiers. We resisted, but we were forced into these big trucks and uh, taken straight to the military camp. There were a widespread violation of human rights. Fundamental freedoms were taken away. It was a full-scale military rule. The first coup were held hostage for five days only and then were released later. The May coup failed to resolve the situation. There was a standoff between the military and the Governor-General. So five months later in September, Rambuka staged another coup, declaring Fiji a republic. This time, it was an attempt to cut the Governor-General and the Crown as a whole out of the picture. Michael Field again. You know, I like Sitaveni Rambuka. I, I know him well. But he's a soldier. He wants to run a place as a military camp. Field has a different view as to how coup culture began in Fiji. Militaries in small countries are unnecessary. My view is... They acquired the military culture from Britain and from New Zealand because New Zealand was actually in charge of the Fiji military uh, during World War II. And they've got a very fierce military culture. They have a very large military. They will tell you that the military makes money through peacekeeping. Well, it doesn't. It costs them far more to maintain the military than they earn from it. Remove the military from Fiji and you wouldn't have a coup culture. I think for a lot of Fijians that lived through the 1987, then 2000 and 2006 military coups, uh, we all went through bitter disillusionment. Ruthie Farrell is a former journalist at the Fiji Sun and the Fiji Times. Her life changed after the 1987 coup. I was working at the Fiji Sun leading up to the, the coup itself. We were publishing a whole lot of stories about overtaking government uh, you know, from many different parties. 
on the day of the coup, we had soldiers come into our offices with uh, M16 guns. I've never seen a gun before in my life, so that was quite a, a shock. We were told to pack our bags and get in the buses and, and go home. When we got on the buses, there were soldiers at the back of the bus and in the front. Total shock for all of us. Two days later, we heard that they'd shut the doors of the Fiji Sun office because of the material that had been published, and um, it was evidence, I suppose. So some of us decided to go and work at the Fiji Times. What transpired after that was quite, yeah, horrific. Kind of shook the fibre of Fijian society. We've never seen guns, we've never seen that kind of uh, political upheaval. Rambuka and the military were very much in control. Um, there was no parliament, no order. I, I'm not sure what the police and the... The military was definitely a big presence in Suva at the time. I worked as a sub at the Fiji Sun, and then I also subbed at the Fiji Times. We would line up the stories that our reporters had written. The front pages had to be taken up to the military to be checked, and they would rewrite the whole story. So for me, that was a suppression of the truth. Coming to New Zealand was we had to come start our life here. I was in and out of Fiji. I was training at the regional media centre there. So they had one for Pacific journalists. And for one of the coups, I was working in regional development. I was at my computer as news broke and came through. Lisa Williams is a former senior journalist living in Fiji at the time of the first coup. She says changes in the media were drastic. From the first one, you could pick up that press freedom was starting to be impinged, so to speak. I mean, because you're in a small community, you have the classic Pacific problem of, you know, journalists with the ethics that they abide by, interviewing or taking stories or reporting on members of their family who were doing things that they didn't quite approve of. It's kind of like there was a lot of personal bias that had to be declared and, and was kind of informing journalism. Not so much in the first coup, could be seen coming through in the second, but certainly after 2000, that um, bias began to be more evident. But at the same time, there was also a pressure on uh, independent journalism that was increasingly evident. Despite international opposition and a tanking economy, Rambuka appointed a new civilian government after the second coup and in 1990 led the creation of a new constitution. This would guarantee that ethnic Fijians stayed in charge of the country. Under the new rules, the Prime Minister and President had to be Fijian. They'd also hold a majority of the Senate and House of Representatives. Through the late 1980s and early 90s, Indo-Fijians left the country in droves as ethnic tensions continued to fester. So by 1997, 10 years after the first two coups, a review of the constitution offered some compromise, reducing the indigenous Fijian majorities and allowing a Fijian of any ethnicity to become prime minister. Archival audio of Prime Minister David Longy again. As far as New Zealand is concerned, any country which makes its citizenship status the basis of their race runs contrary to every conviction that New Zealanders hold about the nature of what it is to be a human being. By 1999, 
Rambuka's popularity was on the wane, and Mahendra Chowdhury had become leader of a rejuvenated Fijian Labour Party. In that year's election, he became Fiji's first Indo-Fijian Prime Minister. But his new role was short-lived. I was Prime Minister exactly for a year, from 19th of May 1999 to 19th of May 2000. In the cabinet that uh, I formed as Prime Minister, there were 18 cabinet ministers, of which 12 were indigenous Fijians and only six were Indians. Indigenous Fijians were driving land reforms. They didn't want the former indentured Indian labourers, who'd been brought in 200 years earlier, taking control and dominating national politics. Then, of course, exactly a year later, there was a coup which uh, was termed a civilian coup. The 2000 coup was led by bankrupt businessman George Spate, who stormed parliament with members of the elite military. But interestingly, no one had a clue who he was. This was quite a surprise for many, that he was the front man for the coup. Where did they get him from? Well, basically, it was a racist coup. They didn't want an Indian to be head of government. But Spate made his presence felt. On that day, they kidnapped 36 MPs and held them hostage for almost two months. Uh, we are in Parliament for 56 days as hostages. You know what was happening outside. We had no access to newspapers, news or anything. We were not treated well. I myself was assaulted one night. My other members of Parliament uh, who were with me, my ministers and backbenchers. There were 40 of us out of the 58, 40 of us were held hostages. We all had a pretty tough time in there. We were abused and uh, threatened. A very, very nasty experience, but we stood up to it. The hostages were finally released on the 13th of July, but what awaited them was a shock, and no one was safe. Then when we came out, we found that uh, the president had been removed and we had a military government. Really, we can't look at uh, them as our protectors. In fact, I look at them as, as a threat to our security. The military deposed Spate just two weeks after the hostages were released. He was found guilty of treason and remains in prison to this day. A year later, Fiji had new elections, but this time Chowdhury lost to indigenous Fijian banker Lysini Angarase. My name is uh, Frank Rompanakandalo. I'm originally from Fiji, from Kandavu, which is the southernmost island from Vitiliu. There were four coups in total, but it was the final one in 2006 that was life-changing for Frank. By this time, Lysini Ngarase had already been the Prime Minister for six years, but his government was about to be overthrown because of disagreements with the powerful Fijian military, led by another Frank, Frank Mbani Marama. It, it was quite new for us too when it happened in 2006. They came after the Fijian people for speaking out for. It was quite difficult for a lot of us to accept it because uh, even my brother is uh, all in the military, my cousin. My brother-in-law right now is the military commander. When the coup happened in 2005, I was viewed by the military as one of the supporters of the Ngarase government who are racist. I, I didn't see at the time that I was doing anything wrong by saying whatever I want or do whatever I want. But Frank didn't realise how serious this was. 
Not only was he judged an opponent of the new military regime, he was being watched. When the coup happened in 2006, there was a lot of anti-coup uh, sentiments being said through the social media. I think we were a group of us, which is the Fiji Indigenous Business Council, which I was one of the uh, founding members. We were accused of uh, being behind one of the uh, social media platforms. So members of the Fijian Indigenous Business Council were kidnapped and beaten. And our president was taken up to the camp and beaten as well. I was being questioned with a few of other executives. They were trying to force us to admit that we were behind it. And we didn't know anything about this particular social media that was spitting out anti-cool thing every day. We were viewed by the military as being a racist organisation too, I guess. From that moment, Everything Frank had ever known was about to change over the course of 24 hours. Yeah, I had a call from the army that I needed to leave the country. Uh, we had soldiers calling us and harassing us in the middle of the night. They would send uh, truckloads of soldiers to come and knock on my front gate at 3 o'clock in the morning. Stuff like that. I was advised that I was going to be arrested and the order was to take me out. They're not guaranteeing me that I'll be alive. Or... There's been a lot of people being taken up to the camp and beaten up by the soldiers. 2001, they had the CRWs, they were all beaten up uh, to a pulp. All of them died with, with impunity of the law. The risk of staying was just too great, so he packed his bags, forced to leave Fiji with his immediate family. Within 24 hours, you got to just leave without saying even goodbye because it was more of a like shock, especially my mom. My mom's old. It was just too fast for her to just leave. I mean, we didn't even say goodbye to our relatives. That's how fast it was. At the time, the military was in, the intelligence was everywhere. On the streets, they were monitoring phone calls. So my advice was not to tell anyone, even our relatives, that we were leaving. I could be stopped at the airport. At the last minute, and that's what I was worried about. Mani Marama took a firm grip on the country and 15 years later is still in power, having now twice won elections. But for people like Frank, it's a place where you have to watch your back. And that's the situation right now in Fiji, which is difficult for the, for the people in the military to, to feel for their family, but at the same time they have to be soldiers. The coup was life-changing, and people weren't even safe from their own families. That's how it is up till now. You, know? you can see there's a lot of uh, military officers that took part in the coup in 2000 have already left, because they've had enough. Uh, it was uh, something that we never prepared for. Now the tables have been turned against us. And all our brothers and cousins and everybody are actually the ones that are pointing the gun at us. What you say and what you do is very, very important in Fiji after 2006. The, the militaries uh, tightened their power in every facet in Fiji, from government to business to, to non-government organisations, uh, the media. You don't know who your enemy is, really. It could be your friend. Coup culture in Fiji has been destabilising, creating even more racial tension but also reinforcing the economic divide between Indian Fijians and Indigenous Fijians, and later, 
dividing the indigenous Fijian community into factions. Journalist Lisa Williams. So I think one of the impacts of the coup culture was how this them and us mentality emerged between business people, between private sector activists, between people that you wouldn't normally see within the whole governance picture. That kind of, I think, vendetta-driven politic, if you like, it came to influence behaviours of people that you would not normally associate, you know, these kinds of actions or decisions or the ways in which they manage their message um, happened. And it became very clear that there were certain people that were favoured and certain people that were not. And if you were not, eventually, sooner or later, you ended up facing tough times and you made your decisions for your family and for your future based around those tough times. They're decisions that you wouldn't normally have made. Back to Jope Tarai, who says Fiji's colonial history has had more of an impact than people realise. The coup culture is inevitable in a way because we have not resolved our colonial hangover and the way we see colonialism. Because our two major ethnic communities see colonialism very differently. And because the legacy of colonialism has, in a way, divided the society, that one has, is more akin to the more commercial, more economic-centric world that we live in, uh, one sort of thrives a lot more, one, one ethnic community, at least in the way it's seen, while the other sort of falls into this sort of uncomfortable conditions of individualism versus communalism and so on. So in that way, it sort of creates this difference that will in, make it inevitable that there's always a struggle. And, and so even now, there are arguments over the fact that um, the 2018 elections did not have enough people voting and the voter numbers were low and things like that. So this, these kind of things disengages people and then it has a spill-off effect for people. And, and largely, people are disempowering themselves too in that regard. Huh? Ruthie, Lisa and Frank managed to make a life for themselves in New Zealand. But freedom always comes at a cost. Yeah, so I've lived here in New Zealand for 30 years. Journalist Ruthie Farrell again. Um, journalism is different. We've got so much freedom to write, criticize the government, you know, criticize the police. And, and unfortunately, this is uh, a privilege that my colleagues do not have in Fiji. The coups left an indelible mark on both indigenous and Indo Fijians, according to Frank. He and his family sought refuge in New Zealand, arriving with only their necessary belongings. They'd been well off in Fiji. Now, they had nothing. I think when we reached Auckland Airport, that's when we all pulled up. We just sat down and we cried at the arrivals lounge because we couldn't show it while we were flying. We just don't know where the plane was going to be. And my children cried and my mom. We didn't say goodbye. It wasn't even a figment of my imagination to come and live here. We have to accept the fact we will never set foot in Fiji again. We've got to also accept the fact that New Zealand is now our home. So I want to thank New Zealand you know, for allowing us here. You know, the worst thing you can do to an islander is take him away from his family, from his island, from the people he loves.
You've been listening to the final episode of Untold Pacific, and I'm your host, Korovaka Uta. This podcast series was produced by Sonia Yi and made possible through the RNZ New Zealand On Air Innovation Fund. The executive producer was Tim Watkin. Special thanks to Ngā Taonga Sound and Vision for archival audio and raw interview resources provided courtesy of Tiki Lounge Productions. If you'd like to listen again or find out more, head to the RNZ podcast page and look up Untold Pacific, where you'll also find pictures and video content by Tiki Lounge. You can also download the series wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. Mode manda. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.